I'd like for you to turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. And I want to begin reading at verse 15, and I'll read through the rest of the chapter. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification or resulting in holiness. Put that word out there, resulting in holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to, with regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit? If you have a King James Bible, what does it have there? What fruit? The real Bible has the word fruit there. Therefore, what benefit, fruit, were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your fruit or benefit, resulting in holiness or sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You remember that preacher that, I don't remember who it was, that, that told the story about he, uh, they were having this citywide crusade and, and they had each, uh, had the steering committee and they had, responsibilities that they performed, and, and his responsibility was to be in charge of the offering, to collect the offering, and, and go into this room, and every night they went into this large room and they counted the offering. And they had this security guard with them, and uh, he stood there and, and, and helped them count, he didn't help them count the money, but he stood guard while they counted the money, and then he, he went with them to the, to the night depository of the bank. And he said, along about Thursday night, they had this Baptist offering. He said, a Baptist offering usually has more ones. And, and he said they had this big stack of ones there. And he said this security guard would stand over in the corner. You know how, how they do it? And he said, had on shades. You know, you can just get the picture. And had his arms crossed. He never said a word. He said, I've never, never heard him say a word. He just stood there looking. And he said they had this big stack of $1 bills on the table, and somebody kind of jokingly said, better check, see if there are any counterfeits in there. You know these Baptists, you know, better, better sure there are no counterfeits. And said, for the first time, the guy said something. This is what he said. You won't find any counterfeit $1 bills. He said, it's not worth the money and the time and the risk to counterfeit a $1 bill. That's all he said. Now, do you know what is the most counterfeited bill of all? You know what that is? The $20 bill. 
You never know what you're going to learn when you come Sunday night. The most counterfeited bill is a $20 bill. And I suppose that the greatest compliment you can pay a $20 bill is the fact that it is the most counterfeited. Now, the Christian religion is the most counterfeited of all the religions of the world. I guess the greatest compliment you can pay Christianity is that it is the most counterfeited of all. And when somebody says, I'm not going down there at that church, there are too many, too many counterfeits down there, too many hypocrites, all they're doing is really giving testimony to the real thing, the value of the real thing. Because I never heard anybody say, I, I'd like to counterfeit an atheist. You ever heard anybody say that? I'm not an atheist, but I'm going to hope everybody thinks I'm one. And I've never had anybody say, you know, I'm not a drunk, but I want everybody in town to think I'm a drunk. So I'm going to counterfeit one. You know, I'm going to play like I am. I hope everybody believes I am. But I do know a lot of people who want to look like and act like and, and, and counterfeit a Christian. I guess it's the highest compliment you can pay. Now the devil has always been in the duplicating business. And so he said to Eve, Miss Eve, this is a terrible paraphrase, honey, you stay with me and I'm going to make you just like God. He didn't say He's going to make her God. But He said, I'm going to make you like one. You notice that? He said, you hang on, you, you hang with me, babe, and I'm going to make you just like God. I'm in the business of counterfeiting. And He is the master counterfeiter, the master duplicator. I mean, you can't hardly tell the difference. And Jesus told the parable one time, He said that, as long as we live, the wheat and the tares are going to grow up side by side and they're going to look so much alike you, can't, you can hardly tell the difference. I mean, you can hardly tell the real thing from a counterfeit. You ever notice that? So how do you tell a real thing? I mean, a real, the genuine article. Do you know why, how the uh, Treasury Department t teaches how it trains its agents to tell a counterfeit $20 bill? They don't send them off to school and... And, and teach them what a counterfeit looks like. They don't do that. They send them off to school and they teach them what the real thing looks like. That's what, how they do it. And he said, now if you can learn what a real $20 bill looks like and feels like and smells like, then it's going to be easy for you to detect the counterfeit. Let me tell you something. The reason why it's so difficult in this world of ours, to tell a counterfeit Christian from a genuine Christian is that we haven't seen enough of the genuine Christians. We haven't seen enough of the real thing yet. And so what, I'm, what this passage is about and what I'm about tonight is to try to help us understand what the real thing is, what the genuine article is, if we're going to find the genuine article of the Christian life. Now... There are two phrases in verses 17 and 18, two phrases that, that are, the, are just concise statements as to what it is, what a Christian is. I want you to get those. In verse 17, the phrase, put a circle around this, you were, and verse 18, you have become. Put a circle around that if you've got a pencil. Now listen to this carefully. A Christian, the genuine article, is a person who was one thing and he became something else. The genuine article, a Christian, is a person who has had a radical change so that he has been one thing and he has now become something else. 
And Vance Havner once made a statement. He said, if you are what you have always been, then you're not a Christian. And he wasn't talking about outward appearance. He was talking about inward reality. And what he was saying is this. If you haven't changed, if you haven't had a radical transformation in the very center of the very center, then you have not been saved. Because a Christian is a person who was once one thing and now he has become something different. Now, that change is a threefold change. Number one, the real thing is a person who has had a change of ownership. Now, I want to read verse 16 again. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Now, the Phillips translation has it like this. Let me read the Phillips translation. It just helps so much, uh, clarify it so much. It says, You belong to the power which you choose to obey. Whether you choose sin, whose reward is death, or God, obedience to whom means the reward of righteousness. Now what he's saying is this, that a Christian is a person who has had a change of ownership. Now there are three truths I want you to jot down. Three incontrovertible truths. The first truth is this, that there are two opposing powers seeking to possess you, to control you. That word belong there, as a matter of fact, means is, is a term that refers to, to denoting possession. You belong either to sin or you belong to God. You belong to sin and unrighteousness or God and righteousness. Now, there are three incontrovertible truths. One truth is that there are two opposing powers seeking to control you. Second, everybody is under control, the control of one of these two powers. And the third truth is that nobody can be under the control of both at once. Now, did you get that? There are two opposing powers seeking to control you. You're under the control of one of these, and you can't be under the control of both at the same time. You see, there's really no freedom. The only freedom that a person has is the freedom to choose who's going to be his master. And the only freedom that a person has is the freedom of the choice of his master. You, you don't, if you're saved, you don't have a right to choose where you're going to college. You don't have a right to choose who you're going to marry. You don't have a right to choose what business you're going to enter, how you're going to raise your children. Paul says that before you came to Christ, you were a bondservant to sin and you were the property of the devil. But if you're saved, you're set free from slavery to the devil, but you became the property of Jesus Christ. That means that when you walk down the aisle of a church, you surrender the ownership of your life to Jesus Christ, lock, stock, and barrel. You belong to Him. Now, you know why, the, why people say that they believe everything in the Bible? It's because they don't know what the Bible says. The reason why we believe everything in the Bible, now I heard people say, I believe everything in the Bible from cover to cover. The reason they say that is because they don't know what it says. Peter Lord has a saying in his church, 
What we believe, we obey, and everything else is religious talk. Let me add just a little bit to that state, to that phrase. We can put that up on the wall here if we want to when that falls down. Put this up there. That you only obey what you... You only obey... You only believe what you obey. You better get it right before we put it up there. It stays up there a long time. You only believe as much of this Bible as you are surrendering to. You only believe as much of this as you are surrendering to. Now I want you to turn to the 17th chapter of the book of Luke. Would you do that for me, everybody? The 17th chapter of the book of Luke. I'm going to read you something, an amazing thing. Jesus is talking to His apostles and they say, Lord, increase our faith. Do something to make us more faithful. Do something to make us more faithful. And Jesus turns to them and He says, If you had faith like a mustard seed, verse 6 of chapter 17, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. But which of you having a slave, look at this, plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. You, the slave comes in, you say, Come on down, come on in here, friend, and sit down, I'll fix supper for you. Now is that... Not going to find many slave owners going to say that. He says, but will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat? And properly clothe yourself and serve me until I've eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. You just serve me and then you can have your supper after that when I get through. He does not, look here, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too... When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We've done only what we ought to have done. Now can you imagine a church where everybody does what they ought to do? you imagine a church where everybody ties? Or everybody attends worship? Or everybody witnesses? Everybody worships? Everybody... Uh, goes to Sunday school, studies the Word of God, everybody has a quiet time. Can you imagine a church where everybody does just what they ought to do? He said, if you find a church like that, you let those people say, we're unworthy because that's all we've done. And we thank people for coming to church. You know what I did that tonight before I even thought, thanks for coming. Why am I thanking you for coming? I mean, you ought to be here, you know. And we get up and we, you know, we talk about people that give and we just, man, we, we appreciate your gifts. Well, my goodness, we ought to do that. So I'm saying? Now, what Paul is saying is this, that when you come down the aisle of a church and you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to understand this, that you have surrendered your life to the ownership of Jesus Christ, lock, stock, and barrel, and whatever He says for you to do, that you ought to do, and then feel bad because that's all you've done. Um, and if you're not willing for Jesus Christ to be the sovereign Lord of your life, you need to take down your flag, you see. All right, so a Christian is a person who has a change of ownership. Secondly, a Christian is a person who has a change of obedience. 
Now notice how many times in this text he uses the word obey or obedience. Now, he is my owner, but he is also my operator. You see what I'm saying? Now, we want him to be the owner. We're not too happy about him being the operator. Let me give you, let me give you an illustration. Let's suppose you've got a business, and business is kind of hitting hard times. We've, you've fallen on hard times, and business is going under. You're, you're in bad shape. You need some cash flow bad. You need some help. So you look around, you find somebody who's willing to buy your business. You say to them, well, now, I'm, I'm, I've just really had not been able to get this business working, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm out of money, and I'm going broke, and I don't want to file for bankruptcy. I'm looking for somebody that will buy me out and give me some, get, you know, get, get some cash flow into this thing, get this business off the ground. The guy says, well, okay, I'll buy your business. He said, well, have one stipulation. If you buy my business, I will sell you my business, but I still want to operate it. I want to make all the decisions and, and uh, call all the shots and handle all the transactions and take care of all the business. You know what the guy's going to say to you? He's going to say, see if you can't find you some other sucker, because I'm, I'm not going for that. You think God is ignorant enough? You think He's going to fall for this line? I want you to come. I'm having some trouble. I want you to take my life. Jesus, come into my heart. I'm in trouble. I want you to come in and, and do some work in here. I'm having a problem, but, but there's one stipulation, Lord. I still want to operate my life. And what the Lord's going to say to us when that happens, you're not ready for me to come into your life. Because if I come into your life, and we, we, we throw that term around, just ask Jesus into your heart. If I come to indwell you, I've come to control you, to be your operator. And so I saw a sign one day, pulled into a service station, a sign said, Open unto new management, owner slash operator, Tom Smith, or whatever his name was. He was the owner and the operator. And when we are saved, we've just, we've taken over, a new management has taken over, and He hasn't taken over just so He can get us out of trouble. He has taken over our lives so He can manage it. See, So He can operate it. And the men said to Jesus one day, He said, well, now look, we're, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, no, He isn't your father. The devil is your father. Because if Abraham was your father, you'd do what your father said. In other words, we display the owner of our life by our obedience. Now, with your pencil still in your hand, I want you to look down in verse 17. I want you to circle the word farm. Now, we're going to do a little, got a little, um, what do you call these? Where you, where object, object lessons. Now, this, my friends, is a farm. You know what goes in there? Cake batter, right? Now this is a farm, F-O-R-M. You understand what I'm saying? When you pour you know, this cake batter in there, and that cake batter congeals or hardens or whatever it does, bakes. <laughs> Did I say something stupid? <laughs> when, when you dump that cake batter cake out, it's going to have this farm, right? That's what it's, it's going to have that farm. I mean, it's not going to come out of there square. Now, I want you to watch, hang in here with me. 
In verse 17, he is not saying that a Christian is a person who decides that he's going to follow the teachings of Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I commit myself to follow the teachings of Jesus. What he is saying is that when you give your life to Jesus Christ for Him to operate, first thing He does is commit you to the form of Jesus Christ. He commits you to the form, F-O-R-M. And if I'm committed to the form, and I am pliable and plastic to the form, and that form is Jesus Christ and what He taught and said. What am I going to come out looking like? I'm going to come out looking like Jesus. Now that's the secret as I see it. For most of us think that this is the way you live the Christian life. You find out what Jesus taught and you try to live like that. God says, wrong. I take you when you surrender your life to my ownership and you surrender your life to be obedient to me, I take you and I commit you to the farm of Jesus Christ. And as you yield your life to Him day by day, you just begin to look like Him and live like Him and act like Him. Isn't that wonderful? I can see you're all excited. One last thought. The real thing... The person who has experienced the re- is the real thing experiences a change that is obvious. Now we come to that word fruit. Fruit in the King James. Benefit, I love it, benefit in the New American Standard. Now, I don't think anybody sneaks into the kingdom of God. I believe that there is no one that is saved without an obvious change. Now this is what he says. He says that... The experience of, of genuine salvation is that you are that that there is this fruit. Now what is what is what is the fruit? What is the fruit of a tree? Well the fruit of a tree is the ob, is what is obvious about a tree. Now that's that's a profound statement, but now I don't know a whole lot about trees, and if I if I walked out into an orchard and there were just trees, rows of trees out there, and you got your peach trees and your and your apple trees and your cherry trees, all that, I, I might know the difference by looking at the leaves, but I might not. But I didn't fall off a turnip wagon either. I mean, if I go out there and I see on a tree it's got some of those little red things that they sell in the store as apples, I can come to the conclusion that that's an apple tree. Because the most obvious thing about the tree is its fruit. Now watch this carefully. He says that when a person is genuinely saved, there will be something obvious about his life. Now, you add that to what he says there when he says, the fruit of that leads to sanctification or to holiness. Now watch carefully. What he's saying is this, that the genuine article, the obvious thing about the genuine article is that that person is holy. Holiness is the most obvious thing about a genuine Christian. Holiness. Now what is that? I think I've told you before that when I was growing up in a little white church down across the tracks and people went down, you know, we'd go down there as kids and just kind of drive by because they went, you think I'm long-winded. 
Sundays they'd go about 10 o'clock at night. Boy, and they, went, they, were, they had some wild services. The little wooden church, and they didn't have any air conditioning, so they had the windows up in the summertime. Boy, you could see right in there, man. And here they were shouting, and it was just. And one day I remember asking my daddy, I said, What kind of a church is that down there across the tracks where they do all those strange things? He said, Oh, that's a holiness church. And so to me, the word holiness to me was synonymous with little white church building where people did strange things and didn't cut their hair and didn't wear makeup. I have come to understand what holiness is. Here's what it is. Holiness is belonging to God and becoming like the God to whom you belong. Now, the most obvious thing about a Christian is twofold. It is obvious that he belongs to God. And that if you watch him long enough, it is obvious that he's becoming like this God to whom he belongs. It's obvious. And so Jesus, in the seventh chapter of Matthew, talks about false teachers. And He's going to help us identify false teachers. And He said, I'm going to help you to understand what a false teacher is. Now, when He, when he helps us, when He starts telling us how to identify a false teacher, what do you expect He would say? Well, you check, it out, you check out His teaching? He didn't say a thing about His teaching. Isn't that strange? That if you're going to find, if you're going to identify a false teacher, He says nothing about His teaching. What He does say is this. You watch the pattern of his life. You watch his conduct. You watch the fruit of his life. And if he's a false teacher, you may not be able to detect if he has, if his teaching is true or false. I mean, there's kids here tonight wouldn't know a false teacher if they met one in the street. But they know a tree when they see one. And they know an apple when they see a tree on a tree. And so he said, you just watch and, and, and listen, it doesn't, you don't have to be a Harvard graduate to know that all that's unfolded in, this, in, in media religion in the last six months, I mean, verifies what I'm trying to say here, is that if you want to know whether the teaching is right or not, I mean, you don't have to take his teaching and, and, and try to analyze it. Just watch him. And it won't be long that the obvious fruit of a false teacher will be unholiness. And the obvious fruit of a genuine Christian will be holiness. Now, you worried about whether or not you're the genuine oracle? You belong to God? And are you becoming like the God to whom you belong? There is this application. What's the application? I'm going to show you something. And we take verse 23 and we use it in every soul winning course I've ever been in. I'm teaching it now to my discipleship class. It's really, it is a soul winning passage, but it's not written for that purpose. It's written for Christian people. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is what he's saying, that the, genu- the benefits of the genuine Christian life, the benefit, the ultimate bottom line is that you have eternal life. And that doesn't mean you live forever. It means that you have God's quality of life from now on. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and its instruction and inspiration. Lord, we know that your word is really not, has not had an impact until we act upon it. So give us courage to act upon it. For I pray in Jesus' name. I wonder if there's anybody tonight who would like to surrender the ownership of your life to him. Who would like to let him take the operation of this life. Let him, let him come into the control room. You're not going to get on an American Airlines plane tomorrow headed for New York City and say, now before I get on this plane, I'm going to have to go in there and check out the cockpit. Say to the operator in there, the pilot, would you move over and let me show you how I want you to run this airplane? No, you're not going to do that. You're going to surrender the control of the of that plane. Takes you there back. Somebody else. Is anybody here tonight who would like to surrender the control of your life? Somebody that knows how to operate it. Can do a better job than you've done. Might be some of you tonight who need to come and just say, Hey, I'm going to take hands off of this area of my life. I've been squeezing. I want to yield it to God. Maybe you need to join the church. Whatever God leads you to do. That's what we'd love to see happen. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.